The second reading comes from Luke 10, verses 25 to 37, and the parable of the Good Samaritan. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbour? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled down, came where the man was and when he saw him, took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, then put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper and said, look after him and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. That ends the reading. Thank the Lord for the reading today. Well, friends, please keep your Bibles at Luke chapter 10. We'll be working through those uh, verses. And if you like, I've um, put a few copies of the full, full transcript for those who find that easier to follow. So they're up the front, so please take one if you like. But let us turn to God in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us through your word by your Son. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, that this morning as we hear these words, that we won't receive them as just the words of men, but the very words of God himself. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you have one question that you could ask God, what would it be? If you've got only one question you would ask God, what would you ask? Now in this world which is so big, so large, often so confusing, often so crazy, I'm sure you would have many questions that you would love to ask God. Now when I was a young boy I had this young inquisitive mind, I had lots of questions, lots and lots of questions and I remember there was this one time when my youngest brother was brought home from the hospital and I remember him being carried home from the hospital But there was something at that time that just didn't make sense in my mind because at that time I remember my mum having a big tummy. The baby was inside 
Now the baby was outside, and so as a six-year-old boy, I had a question. And my question was, how did this baby come out? How did this younger brother of mine come out? Well, I could have asked God that question, but I asked my mum. And my mum, being a conservative Chinese mum, do you know what her answer was? The armpit. The armpit. (laughs) I was a six-year-old boy, I believe that. I believe that. But now, having had three of my own kids, I can assure you it was not the armpit. <laughs> well, my oldest child, Esther, she's seven years old this year, and she's asking me this very same question that I asked as a six-year-old boy. She asked me, sir, how does the baby come out? I said to her, go talk to your mother. <laughs> now, of course, that was just a small question of a, a young boy, a small kid, But if you could ask God one question, what would it be? I mean, as you observe the people in this world, if you watch people and see what they do, all that happens in this world, you probably have very serious questions. Why does love hurt God? Why is there so much evil and suffering and pain in this world if you are God? Why do Christians suffer just as much as non-Christians. In fact, why do Christians suffer more than non-Christians? Why am I here, God? Those might be your questions. But you see, in the story we'll be looking at today, it's a very famous story, a familiar story that I'm sure you'll be familiar with. One guy, this one guy, in fact, got to ask the Son of God, Jesus Christ, a question. He had that chance. He saw the Son of God himself. And he had the chance to ask God a question. And so have a look at this. Verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. And what was his question? This was his opportunity. He said, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now this is a question that we would all ask as well, wouldn't we? I mean, I want to know the answer to that question. I want to know how I can inherit eternal life. And I'm sure you do as well. I mean, there must be more to life. There must be more to this life. I mean, as we consider the life that we have on earth, the grind of work, the toil of labour, the burdens of guilt that I bear, the pressures from society all pouring down, pounding down on us each day. If this is my lot in life, What's the whole point? What is it all about? I mean, in life, some of us will enjoy work, some of us won't. Some of us will succeed, some of us won't. Some of us will get married, some of us won't. Some of us will have kids, three armpits, some of us won't. Some of us will buy a house, some of us won't. Some of us will grow old, some of us won't. But you see, all of us will meet the same end. We all meet the same end if the Lord does not yet return. And that is an end that is sad, that is dark, that is lonely. In a coffin in the ground. There must be more to life than just that. There has to be more to life than just that. Now last uh, Saturday I attended a funeral, the funeral of my sister-in-law's father. This was the same funeral that Chris went to as well. He was a Presbyterian minister, a good man who struggled with cancer for many years. 
And of course that struggle came to an end. But is that all there is to life? Our funeral, our last thing in this world? Well, you see, this expert in the law in this story, he knew that this is not all there is, that there is eternal life. And he wants to know how. He knew that there is eternal life. There is this life in heaven with God. Perfect life, perfect love, perfect peace, perfect justice, perfect life with the Heavenly Father, where there is no more pain, no more decay, no more sadness, no more sorrows, no more burdens. You see, at that funeral, when I was listening to my sister-in-law's eulogy, it was clear that her father knew that as well. Her father knew that this is not all there is to life, that there is indeed eternal life. You see, he was a man, as I listened to this eulogy, he was a man who did not invest in the things of this world. It was actually quite moving. He's never been on an overseas trip. In his 55 years, never been overseas. In his 55 years, never purchased a house. Now, to many of us listening to that, we think, well, this was a man who did not achieve that much, did not experience that much, did not do that much. But you see, his eyes were not on the things of this world. He knew that this is not all there is to life, that there is indeed eternal life. He knew that. And so he was content, despite not having done those things. He knew that there is more to life than just this. He had eternal life and he's got it. You see, the man in this story, the law expert, and my sister-in-law's father was content. He was content that this is not all there is. And if you think about it, eternal life must trump anything and everything we can lay our hands on in this world. It has to. I mean, the things we can lay our hands on in this world They'll all pass away one day. But if you have eternal life, that goes on forever. Now there's a great theologian, Bonhoeffer, he puts this very nicely. He says, if you understand how wonderful, how awesome, how magnificent eternal life is, if you know how great heaven is, you'll be homesick from that very moment. And so if there is eternal life, and if this is what it's like, a life that goes beyond the grave, a perfect life with the Heavenly Father. I want to know it. I want my family to know it. And I'm sure you do as well, that this too would be your question. And so this law expert, he had this one question to the Son of God. He asked, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I want this more than anything else in life. So how did Jesus answer? Well, Jesus says, What is written in the law? How do you read it? So Jesus was in a sense saying, you should know this, you're a law expert, you've studied the law, you should know the answer. So how did he answer? Well he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. You see this lawyer did something quite profound here. In the Old Testament, there are about 613 laws, but he summed it up in these two laws. First, love God first and foremost with all of your life, with every living cell in your body. Secondly, love your neighbour in exactly the same way you would love yourself. 
So did this law expert get it right? What did Jesus say? Well, Jesus said, you answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And so this was his big question to the Son of God. He had that opportunity. He saw the Son of God face to face. And his answer, well, he in fact knew the answer already. But what did he do? Did he go and do likewise? Well, instead of going and doing likewise, he tried to justify himself. Do you see that? That is, he tried to suggest to Jesus, I already do this, Jesus. I already love God. And I'm pretty sure I already love my neighbour. But just to make it clear, just to ask a clarifying question, he asked Jesus, who is my neighbour? Who is my neighbour? I'm pretty sure I already love my neighbour. You see, in his mind, as a law expert, as a Jewish man, he's thinking, my neighbours are my own kind. They are the Jewish people, they are my own kinsmen. They're the people I, I find easy to love. Now, this is perhaps how we might like to think of our neighbours as well. If I have to love my neighbours, then I like to choose who my neighbours are. And they are the ones who are lovable, who are easy to like. They are the ones we get along with. Those are, they're the ones we have a common interest. You see, it's not the weirdos, not the strange people that are my neighbours. I like to choose who my neighbours are. And so this law expert, he's thinking, I'm justified here, Jesus. I'm pretty sure I already love God and I'm pretty sure I already love my neighbour. But then he, Jesus, answers with a story. A story which would have shocked all those listening back then. And a story which should shock us today. A story which would undo all they thought about earning eternal life. And a story which should undo all that we think about earning eternal life. You see, the story Jesus told him was scandalous. So let's have a look at this story. Verse 30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now this was going through wild country. It was treacherous. There were robbers and thieves. It's like going down to Frankston. You don't know what's going to happen. No, Frankston is a nice place if you want to get to Phillip Island or something. Anyway, he he was travelling. He was attacked by robbers. And we see their ruthlessness here. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him, went away leaving him half dead. And so this man, of no fault of his own, was left for dead. But then next in the story, we come to see the first big shock. The first big shock of this story, verses 31 and 32. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite. A Levite was your religious person, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. Now, when we read this story, we might not get the sense of how shocking that would have been for those there listening to Jesus. This was unbelievable. You see, if anyone was to help this man, if anyone was to show any care, any love, it would have been the religious people, the priests and the Levites. You see, they were the people who go to the temple. They were the people who worked at the temple. They were the people who prayed to God. They were the people who were closest to God. They were the ones to help. If anyone was to help, it was them. Now, just so you can get a sense of how shocking this story was, it's probably a bit like this story back in October of 2011. 
This is a story of a two-year-old girl in southern China. She was playing in the marketplace. Now, on that day, 5.30pm in the afternoon, a van hit her. A van drove up, crushed her over the front wheels. He stopped briefly. Now, you would expect him to open up the door, come out and see what was going on, but no, he sped off, crushed her some more with his rear wheels. Now, of course, it was a busy marketplace and so you would expect there would be many people who would walk past who would see the girl on the road and would go to help. Surely someone must have helped. But the first person walked past, pretty much ignored that girl in the middle of the road, walked past, continued on. The second person, well, the second person rode up to her on a scooter, saw her bleeding to death on the road, took off. The third person walked past, noticed her bleeding away there. He too walked past. Three people walked past. Fourth person did. The sixth person did. The tenth person walked past. The fourteenth person walked past. In total, 18 people walked past. The dying girl bleeding to death in her own pool of blood 18 people walked past and did not think to go and help. Did not think to call the ambulance. Did not think to call the police. Now, to make matters worse, there was another truck, another van that approached her and went over her, crushed her some more. Now, when I heard that story, my heart was broken. I was outraged. How could people be so heartless? No pity, no compassion. How can people call themselves human if they act that way? No decency at all. But you see, the story we see here in the Bible was in one sense more shocking than that. You see, it's probably a bit more like this. Those 18 people who walked past that dying girl was not just your ordinary citizens. They, the first one would have been your Anglican minister. The fourth would have been your Methodist minister. The eighth would have been your Baptist minister. The tenth, your priest. The twelfth, your bishop. The eighteenth, your Presbyterian minister. It is the people of God who ignored, the people who should have loved God and loved others who ignored the dying girl. Do you get a sense of that shock now? We read this story all the time, but we don't get the shock. And so who helped this two-year-old girl in the end? You see, that little girl lay there for seven minutes, lying in her own pool of blood. There was even a mother holding the hand of her daughter who walked past, saw the girl and quickly took her away. You would think any mother would have a heart for this other girl, but she didn't. But in the end, it was a 58-year-old street cleaner who came up to her, lifted her lifeless body off the road and called for help. Shocking, isn't it? It was the 19th person who helped. But you see, in the story that Jesus told, we're actually in for a greater shock than that. Because who comes along to help here? Have a look. A Samaritan. A Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was 
And when he saw him, he took pity on him. Now you can just imagine the jaws of those there listening would have just dropped in shock. It wasn't a religious person who helped. It was a Samaritan. Now why was that so shocking? Well, you see, there was a lot of bad blood between the Jews and the Samaritan. They were enemies. They, they hated each other's guts. Now, the Jews would avoid the Samaritans at all costs. They would avoid even entering into their territory, Samaria, just to avoid contact with them. Imagine that hatred. It's a bit like this. Imagine we were enemies with New South Wales. We're not. We love them. But just imagine that we were and we wanted to get to the Gold Coast. Now, because we hate them so much and we're avoiding, to, avoiding any contact with them, we would go instead west towards Adelaide. don't know why you would go there, but we'll go there. We'll avoid New South Wales. We'll go north to the Northern Territory and then around to Queensland. Well, in a sense, that's what the Jews did. That's how much they hated the Samaritans. They hated each other's guts. But this enemy, what did this Samaritan do? Well, have a look. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, which meant that this Samaritan had to walk, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins, two denarii, that is two days' wage. And so if you think about that in terms of the minimum wage in Australia, two days of work is about $300. If you're a student working at Maccas, two days' work probably earns you about $2.50. But anyway, this, this Samaritan gave two days' wage, gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. This enemy, a Samaritan, did all this at his own cost. You see, this story was scandalous. It's shocking. No enemy would would at their own cost care for the enemy. That's just unheard of. And so this is the story of the Good Samaritan, one we're so familiar with. And so Jesus now turns to the law law expert and asks in verse 36, Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hand of robbers? How did he answer? Verse 37, the one who had mercy on him. You can almost sense here his hardness of heart. He wouldn't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan, but instead said the one who had mercy on him. Now, in this question of Jesus, Jesus did something very, very clever. Something very clever. Do you notice that he redirects the question? Because if you think about the man's question, the law expert, what was his question? His question was, who is my neighbour? Who is my neighbour? And so he's thinking, how can I reduce the numbers of my neighbour? That is reducing not the numbers, the size of my neighbours. That is, So he's thinking, I'm going to choose to love only perhaps the front row here. They are my neighbours. I'll decide that. But no, no, that's a bit too many. There's four there. I'll only choose these two here to be my neighbours. Forget the rest. You see, he's trying to reduce the size of his neighbours. But what did Jesus do? Well, Jesus redirects the question. And instead he asks, not who is my neighbour. Jesus asks, 
are you the neighbour? That is, are you the neighbour? You don't get to choose who your neighbours are. Are you the neighbour to everyone around you? Not just the front row, but everyone. You see how Jesus redirects the question. And so Jesus was questioning, are you the neighbour? Are you like the Samaritan who is loving and compassionate to everyone, even an enemy? And so what this means is that love, you see, that Jesus teaches is not selective. You can't select who your neighbours are. Love is not selective, but love has no boundaries. Love is not selective, but love has no boundaries. And so in our final verse, Jesus says, Go and do likewise. Now remember his first question, How can I? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, the answer of Jesus is you want eternal life. That was your first question. Well, go and do likewise. Love in this way. Love in this radical way. Now, do you think that Samaritan went on and did this? Do you think the Samaritan went on and loved his enemies in this radical way? A love which has no boundaries. We well, say, I suspect he didn't. I suspect he didn't. I mean, he couldn't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. But now the question falls on you. What about you? Would you and do you love in this radical way? A love even for enemies, a love which has no boundaries. Well, I suspect, knowing you, knowing us, that we would try to. Of course we would try to love everyone around us. We would do our best at loving all those around us. We we would do our best at being the neighbour to everyone. We might even be that 19th person who helped that two-year-old girl. But now just say... It wasn't a two-year-old girl who was bleeding there in her own pool of blood. Just say it was the person who has looked down on you his whole life, a person who has abused you, who has hurt you, who thinks you as nothing, who treats you like you're rubbish, who thinks you don't even exist. If it was that person who hates your guts, who was lying there on the road bleeding to death, Would you still help? Would you hesitate? Would you think twice? Would your love still know no boundaries? Can you, like what Jesus says here, go and do likewise, even to an enemy who was dying? Well, I know I can't. I know I can't. I know my heart. And I I suspect that you can't too. But you know what? There is one person who can, who could, who would and who has gone and done likewise. And do you know who that person is? It's the same person who was telling this story. Jesus Christ himself. You see, the love of Jesus is one that knows no boundaries. A love that extends even to the enemies, the worst of enemies. You see, Jesus loved his enemies, those who ignored him those who dismissed him, those who, do, who abused him, those who spat on him, those who stripped him, those who whipped him, those who crucified him. Jesus loved even those people. You see, enemies who were back then during the life of Jesus, but enemies today as well. 
Now the Bible actually puts this, puts this quite bluntly. It doesn't hold back. The Bible is quite clear in saying that we're all enemies of God. We are not naturally friends of God. We are all enemies of God. And that's because we are people who have ignored God at some time. We have ignored his son Jesus at some time. We've treated him like dirt. We've treated him as though he doesn't exist. We've treated him as though he's not the true ruler and king of this universe. And so, we are his enemies. But you see, the love of Jesus extends even to us. And it's a love that goes beyond what the Samaritan did. I mean, what the Samaritan did was shocking. It was scandalous to love your enemy in that way, to waste your time and to waste your money in that way. It was costly for the Samaritan to love. But you see, the love of Jesus was far more costly because how did Jesus show his love? The love of Jesus cost him his life. It was his death on the cross. The love of Jesus for sinners is one that cost his life. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. And he did that to take our penalty, to take the punishment we deserve from God because of how we have been enemies of him. You see, this was what the law expert needed to know. And it's only when you come to understand this, understand the love of Christ for you, when you come and understand and believe the death of Christ for you out of love, that's how you come into eternal life. And so remember the first question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you see, the answer is, is that you can't do anything because none of us can go and do likewise. Instead, Jesus is the one who did. We inherit eternal life by believing in him, believing in the one whose love has no boundaries, believing in the one who died for us, the one who died for his enemies. You see, when I understand that, when I understand the love of Christ for me, how costly it is, when I come to be touched by that, gripped by the love of God for me, my heart is changed. It's only after that that I'm able to go and do likewise. See, first I have to experience and know and believe in the love of Christ for me. Only then can my heart be changed and only then can I go and do likewise. This has been the reality for Christians for almost 2,000 years now. It's only when Christians first understand how much God loves them, how costly that love is, that they go on to love others in the same way. You see, in the uh, second century, there was this massive plague that devastated the Roman Empire. It was an epidemic that wiped out about one third of the empire's population. And so if you were living at that time, you would know someone who who died from the epidemic. You would see people were dying all over the place. You see, during this plague, it was a disaster. And only that, a hundred years later, in the third century, there was another plague where a lot died. And so people were facing death all the time. And you know what the pagans did during this time? A lot of those who did not believe in Jesus Christ, the pagans, they actually left the cities. They left their families who were dying, who got that disease. 
left them on the streets to die. They all left. Do you know who remained? It was the Christians. The Christians remained to nurse them. They did not just nurse other Christians. They nursed even the pagans. They showed a love that has no boundaries. A love even for those who hated them. And a century later, one emperor, Emperor Julian, he was confused why these Christians would love the pagans more than their own, more than the pagans would love their own. But in so doing, many of these Christians who nursed these people back to health, many of these Christians died. They died helping an enemy. They died helping those who hated them. They died helping those they nursed. Now, why would the Christians do that? Why would they? Well, you see, they learnt that from Jesus. They first experienced the love of Christ for them, the costly love of Christ for them. And so, they went on and did likewise. Their hearts were touched, touched by the love of Christ. They experienced this radical love and so they went on and did likewise. They went on and loved in such a radical way. Now, I'll end with a beautiful story of a beautiful girl who understood this love of Christ for her, understood it so well, and so she went on and did likewise. Now, in 1960, here's a picture of Ruby Bridges. She was just six years old. She was the first black girl to attend a white-only elementary school in the American South. Now, on the 14th of November that year, she was escorted, you see see it here, into the school by these federal marshals. Outside the school were these angry parents and citizens. They were shouting abuse her. She is not allowed here. She's black. All our kids are white. Now, just imagine that. A six-year-old girl on the receiving end of all this hatred. How do you think she would have felt? I mean, how would you feel if that was you? Having so much hatred against you. Now, I'm not much of a cry, but I suspect if I was that girl, I would be crying. And so what happened? Well, she was escorted into the school by the marshals and then hordes of parents came rushing into school and took their kids out of school. 500 left school that day. You see, they did not want their kids to be around a black girl. Now, she couldn't understand why. She couldn't understand why. Why? Once inside, she sat at her desk, but the classroom was empty. None of the parents allowed their kids to go into class, go into school. And so she had no one to learn with, no one to eat with, no one to play with. There was no one. But yet her teacher, Mrs Henry, she was a bit dumbfounded. She was unable to understand why this six-year-old girl who was on the receiving end of so much hatred could still remain so polite, could still be so relaxed and so hopeful in spirit. Everyone expected her to quit. One morning, her teacher, Mrs Henry, noticed Ruby walking towards school as usual. But then she stopped. She turned towards the crowd and it appeared as though she was talking to them. The crowd was ready to pounce on her. Then she stopped talking talking, and then she went into the school. 
escorted by their marshals. Had a teacher noticing that, Mr Senri asked her, what happened? Why did you stop to talk to that rude crowd? Now Ruby said, I didn't stop to talk to them. I wasn't talking to them. I was praying for them. You see, every morning, Ruby Bridges would pray for those who hate her a few blocks away from school. But that very morning, she forgot until she was in the middle of the mob. And so she stopped and prayed for her. And what we learned later was that she would pray for her haters before school and after school. And she would pray this prayer. She would pray, Please God, try to forgive these people because even if they say those bad things, they don't know what they're doing. So could you forgive them just like you did those folks long time ago when they said terrible things about you? A six-year-old girl to respond, to react in that way. Now where do you think she learnt that from? Well, no other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. As he hung there on the cross, what did Jesus say? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. You see, Ruby, there's a painting of her that was made and placed outside the Oval Office. Ruby experienced the costly love of Christ for her. She understood what it meant to be loved in such a radical way. It changed her heart and it compelled her to do likewise, to do just what Jesus said to that law expert. She became a neighbour, even to those who hated her. And so what about you? I mean, this is one of the most important questions you could ask anyone. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, the answer is nothing. There is nothing you can do at all. Rather, it is through the costly sacrifice of the Lord Jesus for you, whose love has no boundaries, who died for you when you come to understand that, when you come to believe the death of Jesus for you, That's how you inherit eternal life. And once you understand that, once your heart is changed by that, it compels you to go and do likewise. What Jesus said in that last verse. It compels you to go and love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And it compels you to be the neighbour to all those around you. So what must you do to inherit eternal life? There's nothing you can do. But believe in the one who loved you with his life. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you for your great love for us, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We see your love clearly at the death of Christ, a love which has no boundaries. And so help us to understand his love, to believe in Jesus, his costly sacrifice for us, that we might inherit eternal life. And so help us to do likewise, to go and do likewise, to love you with all our heart, soul, strength and mind, and to be the neighbour to everyone around us, even those who hate us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.